another episode of the Protozoan Pod. Today's episode is hosted by Alyssa, Abby, Ella, Maddie, and Heraldis. In today's episode, we will cover everything about toxoplasmosis. So without further ado, let's dive in. So let's start with the basics. What is toxoplasmosis? Well, to start, it's a parasitic infection, and the simplest definition of a parasite is an organism that feeds off of a host. Parasites get food and energy from the host at its expense. The three main classes of parasites that cause disease in humans are protozoa, helminths, and ectoparasites. Protozoa can live on their own or in a host cell. They are microscopic parasites because they are single-celled, and they can multiply in humans. Helminths, on the other hand, are multicellular, and usually you can see them with the naked eye. Like protozoa, they can live on their own or in a host cell. Most of them look like worms. Gross. The last group I'm talking about today is the ectoparasites. The ectoparasites include those tiny little blood-sucking bugs. You probably experienced an encounter with an ectoparasite when your first grade class had a lice outbreak. Ew, I never knew there were multiple types of parasites. What type of parasite causes toxoplasmosis? That's a great question. The parasite that causes toxoplasmosis is called Toxoplasma gondii. It really likes warm-blooded animals like humans, and it's also a protozoan parasite, so it's super small. The size of Toxoplasma gondii ranges from about 4 to 8 micrometers. For reference, a grain of salt is about 60 micrometers, so it's really small. It multiplies really fast and reproduces asexually, but the parasite reproduces sexually in cats. Toxoplasma gondii is in the Sarcocysta family, which contains many parasites that are harmful to humans. Other types of parasites in this family include the Cyclospora, Isospora, and the Cryptosporidia. Toxoplasma is by far the most popular parasite in this family, though. Interesting. Who is affected by toxoplasmosis, though? Toxoplasma gondii likes to live in hot, humid areas where the altitude is relatively low simply because it has a better chance of surviving in these types of environments. It's said that around 11% of people in the United States that are over the age of six have experienced toxoplasmosis before. Around the world, the percentage spikes to about 60%. That's a lot of people who have had an encounter with our not-so-friendly friend, Toxoplasma gondii. In cats, the level of this parasite was seen in far higher percentages in domestic cats than wild cats. Around 50% of these domestic cats were in Australia and Africa, while 75% of the wild cats were found in Africa. This is according to a meta-analysis that was published in the Parasites and Vectors Journal. They measured the level of the parasite in felines reported over the course of five decades to come to these conclusions. Wow, those are pretty high percentages. What is the importance of cats in the Toxoplasma gondii life cycle? So the only known definitive host of Toxoplasma gondii is felines. This means the parasite is able to sexually reproduce in felines. Oosis, which are hard and thick-walled versions of the parasite that are resistant to the environment, spread the parasite through their feces. Intermediate hosts, like birds and rodents, become infected after ingesting the soil or any plant that is contaminated. The oosis then become tachyzoites shortly after infection, which is a stage of the parasite that is fast-growing and multiplying. The parasite develops into cysts in the intermediate host tissues. Cats become infected after consumption of intermediate hosts. Cats can also become infected through ingestion of the oosis in the environment. And how do humans become infected? Humans can get infected by eating undercooked meat from animals that ingested the oosis in the environment that now contain these tissue cysts, or by ingesting any food or drink that is contaminated with cat feces. Humans can also get the disease through blood or organ transfusion or from mother to fetus. In humans, the parasite creates tissue cysts in various parts of the body. So why is education about toxoplasmosis infection important? Are the outcomes severe? 
Toxoplasmosis can affect everyone, but in many people, infection with the parasite does not cause illness. However, infection can be serious for pregnant women, neonates, and immunocompromised people. When pregnant people contract toxoplasmosis, it can cause miscarriage, stillbirth, and birth defects. Are there any other groups of people that this infection is more serious for? The infection is serious for immunocompromised people, such as those with AIDS, because they are at a higher risk of developing toxoplasmic encephalitis from a chronic toxoplasmosis infection. Chronic infection results from the fact that the parasite can remain latent in cysts for decades. Reactivation of these latent cysts can result from the immunosuppression associated with HIV AIDS infection, specifically the depletion of CD4 cells, a type of immune system cell, below 200 cells per microliter. Without treatment, toxoplasmic encephalitis leads to coma and subsequent death. The symptoms are serious as well, ranging from headache and confusion to motor weakness and psychiatric symptoms. That sounds terrifying, Abby. How common is this infection though? That's a great question, Heraldus. Toxoplasmic encephalitis is very important to consider because toxoplasmosis is the most common opportunistic infection in people with HIV AIDS in developed countries. It is also the most common cause of a type of brain lesion, coma, and death in this population. The consequences are serious, so we need to dedicate resources to learning more about this. It's also important to consider the after effects of toxoplasmosis infection in HIV AIDS infected populations, which can include speech abnormalities, psychosis, dementia, muscle weakness, partial paralysis, and personality disorders. There is a very large morbidity associated with toxoplasmosis infection in HIV AIDS infected populations, which is just as important to consider as the deaths that result. Are there any other specific toxoplasmosis infections important to consider? Yes, so toxoplasmosis infection of the eye, called ocular toxoplasmosis, is often obtained from congenital infection and therefore mainly affects neonates. This can lead to retinochoroiditis, aka inflammation of the retina and choroids, which can cause blurred vision, pain, sensitivity to light, and blindness. Loss of vision can be so severe that one-fourth of patients who have had ocular toxoplasmosis develop vision worse than 2200 in at least one eye. This means that what the average person can see from 200 feet away, they must be standing only 20 feet away. This is severe vision loss that would be life-altering. Can this parasite get diseases itself? There are some parasites that can become infected by viruses, creating a complex relationship. Although, there's no evidence to suggest that this has occurred in the Toxoplasma gondii parasite. This is a rare situation for any protozoan parasite. Oftentimes, this is present in vector-borne diseases. Hey, Maddie, can you explain how toxoplasmosis most commonly spreads? Of course, Abby. So to start, toxoplasmosis can be transmitted in three main ways. These are zoonotic, from felines to humans, foodborne, or congenitally. There are a few activities that have the highest risk of causing these types of transmission associated with them. In order to identify these, we need to understand the life cycle of the parasite. Transmission depends on the definitive host, which is a cat, infecting an intermediate host, which could be cats, mice, or our main focus, humans. The way this occurs is that the oocysts, a life stage of the parasites, are present in feline feces. Once these sporulate, which takes approximately three to five days, then the parasite is infectious. This makes cleaning a litter box and gardening high-risk activities for humans. In these situations, a person could get a sporulated oocyst on their hands, which has sporozoites contained inside, 
and if they touch their eyes or mouth prior to washing their hands, the parasite could enter their body. Are there any other high-risk activities for humans? Yes, another high-risk activity that is a common mode of transmission of T. gondii is consuming raw or undercooked meat. In order to ensure that the parasite cannot survive in the meat you're going to consume, you should cook it to an internal temperature of 67 degrees Celsius or greater. In this case, a human becomes infected with the zoidosis stage, which contains bradyzoites. Additionally, this stage can infect humans through organ donation or congenital infection. These are the only manner in which toxoplasmosis can be passed from human to human. Otherwise, the feline is an essential part of transmission. Now that we understand how humans can become infected, how does the definitive host become infected? So the definitive host for T. gondii is all felines, which can range from a lion in the wild to a domestic pet cat. All felines can become infected by consuming an infected animal or their own or another feline's infectious species. So what are the symptoms? Symptoms begin one to three weeks after exposure and last for two to four weeks. Most healthy people will experience either no symptoms or flu-like symptoms such as fever, swollen lymph nodes, headache, and a skin rash. Compromised people experience more severe symptoms. Some of these symptoms are associated with encephalitis, which were discussed earlier. To recap, these include confusion, weakness, seizures, and psychiatric symptoms. Compromised people can also have lung symptoms, including breathing problems, fever, and a cough. Additionally, symptoms can be more severe in infants. They can develop hydrocephalus, which is excess fluid buildup in the brain, as well as irregular brain tissues. Other symptoms include eye infection, enlarged liver and spleen, problems with mental or motor skills, hearing problems, heart disorders, jaundice, and rash. Clearly, toxoplasmosis has serious lasting effects for infants that can lead to mental or physical disabilities for the rest of their lives. That's a lot of symptoms to recognize and keep track of. Yes, it is, but it's important to remember, however, that symptoms vary depending on the type of infection and how it was acquired. You may experience just a couple of these symptoms or many of them. Just because you don't have symptoms, but you think you may have been exposed to Toxoplasma gondii, it does not mean you are not infected. What is the diagnostic process like? That's a great question. The IgM antibody is often the first responder and signifies a recent infection in the host, and the IgG antibody is the second responder, which indicates long-lasting protection in the host. Different serological tests can be completed to detect antibodies. A few of these tests are a dye test, indirect fluorescent antibody tests, enzyme amunoassays, agglutination, and avidity. A dye test is considered the gold standard and is used for detection in humans as it is unreliable in other animals. Indirect fluorescent antibody tests are widely used in humans and animals. The enzyme aminoassays, also known as ELISA tests, can test both antibodies and antigens. This type of test is often used to test a large number of samples at one time. These are just the start. There are so many possible options for disease detection. Now that we know the symptoms to look out for and how toxoplasmosis is diagnosed, how is it treated? So for healthy people, a drug cocktail can be prescribed that typically consists of medications called pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine, plus folinic acid. This doesn't mean much to most people, I would assume, so I'll explain what these medications do. In short, they interrupt the DNA synthesis of the parasite, stopping its replication. But how do they do this? Well, there are two enzymes involved in the folate pathway of DNA synthesis. 
These enzymes have really long names, so we'll just use their abbreviations DHFR and DHPS. Pyrimethamine and trimethoprim target the DHFR enzyme, which is why one of these drugs will be prescribed. These medications are too weak to only be used on their own, as inhibiting the one enzyme is not enough. This is why sulfonamides, such as the other medication I named sulfadiazine, are also prescribed. Sulfonamides block the DHPS enzyme. Are there any side effects? Yes, unfortunately this treatment can have severe side effects. These side effects often lead to treatment non-compliance, which is when people do not take the medications or complete the medication regimens that have been prescribed. Non-compliance from undesirable side effects can be especially damaging for infected infants and immunosuppressed people who need long courses of treatment. A possible severe side effect of these medications is myelotoxicity. Myelotoxicity is bone marrow suppression, which can involve neutropenia, a reduced number of neutrophils, which is a type of white blood cell involved in the immune system, thrombocytopenia, a reduced number of platelets that can impair blood clotting and cause excessive bleeding, and anemia, which is a reduced number of red blood cells. It can also cause lymphopenia, which is less common but can put the person at a higher risk for developing opportunistic and often life-threatening infections. Another severe drug reaction is Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is a very serious skin disorder that causes painful rashes and blisters to spread, and ultimately the top layer of skin dies. As is evident, there are many risks to treatment, so it is clear that research on safer treatment methods is imperative to improving treatment compliance. Geraldus, can you give us a brief background on how toxoplasmosis was discovered? Sure, Alyssa. In the year 1908, Nicole and Mansuix discovered a protozoan in the tissue of a hamster-like rodent. The following 30 years saw a growing understanding of a pyrocyte and its impact on various hosts. In 1939, Sabine identified the transmission of Toxoplasma gondii through ingestion of raw or undercooked meat contaminated with tissue cyst. In 1942, Wolf and Cohen discovered the congenital transmission of toxoplasma, revealing the potential for the parasite to be passed from an infected mother to her unborn child. Furthermore, in the 1950s, researchers started to investigate the potential impact of toxoplasma infection on human health, including its association with ocular diseases. That's fascinating. Now, Ella, how has our understanding of toxoplasmosis evolved throughout history? Well, the mechanism of transmission was a mystery until 1970 when its life cycle was finally understood. A study conducted by Frankel, Doobie, and Miller found that cat feces contained the parasite's oosis, which could then infect other hosts. This discovery significantly advanced our knowledge of the disease's transmission. The revelation that cat feces could be a source of Toxoplasma gondii transmission had a considerable impact on society. People became more aware of the potential health risks associated with handling cat litter and the importance of proper hygiene in preventing infection. This awareness led to changes in pet ownership practices, such as more frequent cleaning of litter boxes and avoiding direct contact with cat feces. Moreover, it prompted pregnant women to take extra precautions as they are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of toxoplasma infection, including the risk of congenital transmission to their unborn child. In addition, public health initiatives started emphasizing the need for proper food handling and cooking practices to reduce the risk of toxoplasma infection through consumption of undercooked meat containing tissue cysts. These efforts aim to educate the general public about the risks associated with the parasite and the necessary measures to prevent its transmission. Now that we have a solid understanding of the history of toxoplasmosis, let's move on to the current research. 
Geraldus, what are some of the key areas of focus in toxoplasmosis research today? Presently, researchers focus on better understanding the disease's epidemiology, improving diagnostics, and developing effective treatments and prevention strategies. And how is funding for this research allocated? Are there any government or pharmaceutical initiatives in place to tackle this disease? Well, both government agencies and pharmaceutical companies contribute to the funding of toxoplasmosis research. The National Institute of Health, for example, has awarded several grants for studies on this disease. However, more support is needed, especially in places where the disease is most prevalent. Could you give us an example of how research on toxoplasmosis has been conducted? Of course. In recent years, scientists have used advanced molecular techniques such as PCR and DNA sequencing to study the parasite's biology and genetics. These techniques have helped to identify potential targets for drugs and vaccines. What is the end goal for toxoplasmosis research? The end goal is multifaceted. It includes the eradication of a disease, raising awareness, more equitable distribution of resources, and training local communities to handle the issue effectively. All right, so given all the information we already presented, what's next? Great question. There are a variety of different steps that can be taken in addressing toxoplasmosis as they fall into a, a few different areas, education, sanitation, and management, infrastructure, and research. Wow, that seems like a lot to handle. Is that truly feasible? I think with increased resource devotion and education, it could be. Many diseases are managed with multifaceted approaches. These are effective because it caters to a larger variety of people with different socioeconomic backgrounds living in varying environments. Yeah, what you said sounds similar to approaches taken for things like COVID, malaria, and yellow fever. Exactly. So what are some steps that can be taken for the education portion of the action plan? I think the biggest education step is just that. Educate people on what toxoplasmosis is and how it spreads. Diseases with low mortality rates are often overlooked, so a majority of people don't have any sort of background knowledge on it. I think that it could be beneficial if there is an education campaign in areas where the disease is more prevalent that discusses the origins of the disease, how it spreads, and prevention steps like washing your hands frequently after coming into contact with cat feces and wearing gloves. The campaign could come in all sorts of forms, such as coming from local healthcare professionals, media campaigns coming from veterinarians for people that own cats as pets, or from sanitation entities in different regions. It is also important to educate local community leaders and healthcare workers to diagnose, treat, and help with any initiatives for their own communities. Okay, so what other preventative measures can be taken and why are they so important? Preventative measures are important because there's less of a mitigation cost to individuals and society as a whole. When individuals use preventative measures, it can generally improve lifespan length, decrease the cost of disease management, decrease morbidity, and decrease the risk of other complications arising. In other words, it is easier to stop negative effects before they begin rather than after. Another preventative measure can be taken on a behavioral and infrastructural level. This could look like providing gloves for people that move or are around feces, especially farmers and sanitation workers. It could also be building fences or planting citrus or eucalyptus on the borders of farms and slaughterhouses to prevent stray cats from entering. Rat traps could also be set up in these places as well, so cats have less of a reason to enter. Cracking down on health inspections, providing seats, gloves, or traps, 
and helping with the funding for fences could incentivize people to proceed with those measures. I already addressed some of the individual's level sanitation efforts that can be taken, but cat feces can build up in latrines around bodies of water, increasing the risk of toxoplasmosis infections. Regions could devote more resources towards keeping infectious zones cleaner through increased sanitation and waste management, or come up with a system that prevents people from coming in direct contact with the feces itself when in these areas. Ways to incentivize this would be giving tax breaks to animal management companies, providing a bonus to become part of animal control, or providing traps to areas exhibiting high rates of toxoplasmosis cases that don't have a system in place already. Would increasing research be considered preventative as well? It absolutely would. Getting ahead of the science behind toxoplasmosis is important, and while mortality is low, morbidity is relatively high. Currently, not very many institutions are working on toxoplasmosis, and once it reaches the human host, the effects are lifelong. Increasing studies on it may help us find a more effective treatment or something that eradicates the parasite once it's inside the host. While researchers preventative, the actual administration of things that help manage or eventually treat toxoplasmosis or not. The hope is that measures I have spoken about would be to lower the amount of cases of toxoplasmosis and improve the quality of life for many individuals. It is important to note that there is not a one-size-fits-all solution to help manage the disease. Areas where this is prevalent should have individualized plans that best fits the needs of its own communities. I completely agree. And with that, our discussion on toxoplasmosis is pretty much wrapped up. Alyssa, do you have anything else to add? I just want to thank you all for joining us today. This has been an enlightening discussion on toxoplasmosis, and I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as we did.